Let's talk about this sermon series, why, why we're going to do a, a series on the gospel. Well, the first reason, I want to give you some reasons before we get started, in a catechismal way. Oh, there's a new fancy word for City Harvest Church, catechismal. Everyone say catechismal. catechismal. It's a nice little adjective there, catechismal way. Catechism comes from a Greek word that actually means to teach orally. And the early church, the way they educated an illiterate congregation, a literate church, because everybody didn't read in the Roman Empire, was actually to have a format of oral instruction that was questions that would be quoted back with answers. And through that, in a rote way, they, they taught people the, the fundamentals and the, the, the elements of the Christian faith. And it, it covers the basic general principles and values and beliefs that we have as Christians. The Catholic Church uses it. The Church of England uses it. The I think the Lutherans and the Presbyterians use it. It may not be the Presbyterians. I could be wrong there. But uh, basically, it's understanding the basics of the faith. And, and in a catechismal manner, in our country, many believers cannot really define the gospel. I ask them, what is the gospel? Well, it's, it's good news. It's, okay, about what? Well, God's no longer angry at you. Well, that's probably not the best representation of what the gospel is. And so, because of that, we want to really define this for everybody in the church. This is the first reason for this little card you got when you came in today. How many people got this card? Wave at me when you came through a door. If you didn't, the ushers have one for you. And uh, just wave your hands, and uh, not sure we'll have. We got one back there. We got one here. I got one in the front row. And thank you, Brent. Keep those hands up. Brent will get that to you. First part, we just did a basic catechismal thing here where we said, what is the gospel? And then we have like five things. Now, the gospel is much more than this, but we wanted to cover some things on that. And basically, the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's good news about God coming to us, and it deals with First Thessalonians. And uh, we got a, um, yeah, first, I don't know if we got the right scripture there on the first one. I saw, I may see a misprint. That should be chapter one, verse nine through 10, but we'll, we'll see. I didn't catch that first service. Well, but I'll check on that. <laughs> but anyway, we'll make sure if it is a misprint, we'll give it to you next week. Okay, someone check the reference out for me. Um, to have those question and answers on that, on the basic elements of the Christian faith. The second reason why I'm doing this is the gospel has always been positioned between thieves. I'm borrowing from a metaphor that early church father named Tertullian said that the gospel always is between two thieves. And these thieves have spiritual terminology. These, these thieves have religious terminology, even Christian terminology, but they can lead you a little bit too far left or can lead you a little bit too far right. And there are some, from the intention, from the intent, intention that the gospel was originally written to convey. And they can, what they will do for you, if you, you follow those things wrongly, too far to the left or too far to the right, is you're gonna lose the power of the gospel and how it affects you. And, and it's gonna, we're gonna lose the power of the gospel and how we present it to others in an effective way. The third reason why I'm doing this series is the gospel has been trimmed down in its presentation. Not to say that what people are saying to people are, are is wrong, it's actually it's correct what they are, are saying, but it's fragmented and it's, and it's incomplete. And what happens when the gospel is being pre presented in a way that's 
incomplete and fragmented. It leads to, for, to a wrong focus. It, it leads to watering down the, the good news as, as powerfully as the good news should be communicated. It waters down the good news and how good that good news is. And it also affects the church's influence because of the way we're presenting the gospel. The fourth reason why I want to talk about this is that the gospel should radically be transforming us and confronting us daily and, 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 um, and become really the center focus of our life throughout our, our lives. It should absolutely be changing me, confronting me, transforming me. And that's why I pray that this thing will go from your head to your heart that will radically impact you as it has me and as has so many people. And I want to be impacted more by this thing called the gospel. And then the last is the gospel is this. It's to be announced. It's to be proclaimed based on something that happened instead of being something where I give good advice or I'm giving you good counsel from the pulpit. This is not the place for me to give you good advice and good, good counsel from the pulpit. This is a place by which we make a proclamation, a declaration of an event that happened. You know, Christianity is the only religion in the world that's not based on philosophy. It's based on an event. And that's a profound statement. It's an event that took place at a, at a particular point in time that we're going to celebrate next week. That event has changed everything because it announced of another event that's coming. Between those two events of this thing called life, the space and time that you and I experience, where we're radically impacted by these two major events that the gospel talks about. You know, many believers uh, pray the prayer. You know the prayer, you know. I confess I'm a sinner, and Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God, and come into my heart. I'm not saying that that's wrong. They attend, they attend church, even once in a while, get excited about church. But eventually, Christianity, and eventually the gospel gets put back into their box to fit in with everything else they're about. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have anything else in your life uh, that you do except go to church and read your Bible. But we should be so deeply affected by the gospel that even when we're doing other things, we're deeply impacted by this thing called the gospel. It's changing me. It's speaking to me. It's transforming me. Rather than I'm fitting it into a box like I fit in my workout program. Okay, I work out Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I think about the gospel Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. I just kind of fit it into my box versus something that's absolutely transforming me. So the second thing in the card that you're holding that we want you to really be praying about is that this card's designed for um, you to be able to ask yourself a question every week. And April 9th is this, how will I be different this week? What do we mean different? Because of the gospel, how will I be different this week? Man, in other words, we want to get it from the head to the heart. And if that's the case, it should affect my values. It should affect the way I view life. It should affect my goals and aspirations. It should affect my time. It should affect my giving. All because something happened and something's going to happen. The gospel should change me. 
Now, let me get into our verses today. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing the church at Thessalonica. And people would, would, would say with me before I read on that Paul knew something about the ingredients of the, of, of the gospel. Are you there with me? Let's take a vote. How many people thought Paul knew what he was talking about? Okay, some of you are voting. Very good. If you don't know who the Apostle Paul was, he was a, he was a Jewish teacher of the law who was zealous, who persecuted Christianity. Jesus appeared to him and blinded him actually for three days until God dealt with his heart. He surrendered his life to Jesus and became the great, got a sight back, but became the great apostle of the faith and wrote one half of the New Testament. And uh, great man, that even the apostles submitted to the things that Jesus showed him. And so this is what Paul's preaching when he's preaching the gospel. He says, how you turn to God from idols. Let's just stop there. The gospel has something to do with the idolatry that's in the human heart. We all come to God with idols in us. They say, I have no statue I'm bowing to. I have no fetish that I trust in. But we all have idols. They may, they may be visible. They may be invisible. They might be very, very loud. They might be very, very subtle. But an idol is something that means more to me than God. And as, the, as, as God says in his first commandment, you shall have no other gods, what? Before me. And so why does God start off with that? Because God knows that idolatry rests within you and I. And it's something we have to wrestle with throughout our walk. So the gospel, the first thing it does, it confronts idolatry in the human heart. And it says going on to serve the living and the true God. The gospel is about God. The true God, the God who's alive, who has a purpose, who has a will, who has something he's trying to do in the earth, something he's trying to fulfill. It's about God and his purpose that we're supposed to serve. And it says and to wait for his son from heaven. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the son of God, who died for you and I, who died for the human race, was buried and was raised from the dead, as we'll celebrate next Sunday. But also, the gospel is about an event to come because it says here, we are to wait for his son from heaven. He's coming again. Whom he raised from the dead, the resurrection of the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the gospel involves a thing called wrath that we're delivered from. Right. All right, so these are some ingredients of the gospel. Versus how many people just want Jesus to come in your heart today? There's something that needs to be experienced. Paul goes on, to 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And I want you to notice this, in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures? The New Testament hadn't been written yet. The scriptures are the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures spoke of the death of Christ. 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, notice this, in accordance with the scriptures, that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to the resurrection of Christ. In other words, the gospel isn't something God sprung on like plan C onto the scene. It's a part of a biblical storyline. It's a part of a continuum of God accomplishing his purpose. It brings a lot of comfort to me that God's got a plan and he's unfolding it and he's bringing it to pass. Now, the third scripture I want you to read today, we're talking about the gospels in 1 Romans 1, 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul says this. This is probably not a scripture you probably put on your refrigerator. It's probably something not part of your 10 verses you want to, you know, memorize for a better life. But I'm going to tell you this. In these four verses, Paul defines how he preached the gospel. This is Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle. That's one who's sent, one who's an ambassador, one who's a herald. I mean, Paul thought he was commissioned by God to be the messenger of God. And today we're talking about the message. Set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was dedicated, holy, called by God to separate himself from all other pursuits of life to pursue one thing, to preach the gospel of God. Now he defines what that gospel is, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I thought it was about Jesus dying for my sins. Yes, it is about Jesus dying for your sins. But Jesus dying for your sins is part of a whole package God is trying to reveal to us. It started when he promised his plan back in the Old Testament. He, beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David. Now, what is that all about? I've never heard Billy Graham preach on, today we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, the son of David, who descended from the house of David. I mean, that was God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Well, that's true. But why does Paul go in such detail to kind of cut out the non-learned person from this gospel process? Because he's trying to say that this gospel was always part of God's plan, and God made certain covenant promises in the Old Testament that he's kept. So it is way beyond Jesus coming into my heart. It's Jesus coming into my heart who is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God who makes his promises and keeps his promises. It's better than he's just coming into my heart. I got a loyal God coming into my heart, changing me. One of the first things that I thought of when I became a Christian, man betrayed me, man let me down, but I knew that somehow God would never betray me, and he ever, never has. He's a covenant-making God who was descended from the David according to the flesh and notice this, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was also truly God and that he was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So where, where is this about me? I don't see my name in here. We're going to say that God just loves you and he just wants to hug you. He wants to wipe the tears out of your eyes and wants you to sit on his lap. It just somehow is not in there. I, Bob missed the roll call or something. He didn't, he didn't get put in there. There's a reason why it's not there. 
Because the gospel is about God's covenant promises. And the gospel is about the exaltation and the glorification of Jesus. Not me and not you. Now, does God love me and you? Yes. Does God want to heal you and me? Yes. Does God want to forgive you and me? Yes. But that's just part of the storyline. It's not the total focus of the storyline. So let's talk about the gospel. What is the gospel then? The gospel is this. The gospel is the good news of an event that happened. And that's what we're going to celebrate next week. Is an event that took place where Jesus was crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, and rose again on the third day. But it's also an event that's going to happen. As we read in 1 Thessalonians 1 already, and we wait for the coming of his son. He's coming a second time. The second coming of Jesus is as much a part of the gospel as the first coming of Jesus. They're together. And notice this. And the difference it makes now. Now, this whole event, what took place 2,000 years ago, and this whole event that Jesus is coming again, our King is coming again, it makes everything different now in my life. I'm sure it makes everything different now in your life. It makes everything different in the world. I mean, we, we, we need to see that life is not the same if this event is true and this event is true Everything happens in between changes. Okay, let's look at an illustration from the past. Can I be a history nerd for a second? You guys are so patient with my little history illustrations. Let's go back to Roman history. I hate Roman history. That's okay. I'll make it fun. How many people have ever heard of Julius Caesar? Everybody. Caesar salad? Everybody's eating Caesar salad. Julius Caesar was the first, basically, Roman emperor. Prior to that, Roman was a republic. It was ruled by a senate, and the, and the senate <coughs> was, was the one to make the law, the government of law that the senate upheld, and there was no personality emperor. Julius Caesar was a, a great Roman general, philosopher, historian, uh, I think he was a Senate member too, but he rose through his, through his military victories. This would be 100 years before Christ, 44 to 44 years before Christ. He got so many victories, even conquering Britain, that eventually he made himself emperor by marching his 13th legion into Rome, conquering Rome. It would be like a coup today in our, in our modern world, and it became Caesar. He became the emperor. He became, and Rome went from a republic to an empire. Very important. A republic is a government by law. They went from law to a ruler. And, of course, not all the Senate liked that. Well, he had two guys that helped him. One was his adopted son, Octavian, that later was known as Augustus Caesar, who was the Caesar in power when Jesus came into this world. You read about him in the Gospels. And so um, a civil one, he was, it was, two guys helped him go to the throne, but the Senate still didn't like him, so... The Senate, basically, by a guy named Brutus, um, basically assassinated Julius Caesar. And you guys studied Shakespeare and, uh, in school, so you remember that famous line, et tu, Brute. It's a great line. I, I, I've said that so many times, my 10th grade, 10th grade year in English. But uh, he dies. His friend betrays him. 
Senate turns on him, and a civil war ensues between these two generals, Mark Anthony and Octavian, who became Augustus Caesar. Now, here we got the gospel picture. You have a war between two factions. You have a city called Rome that would be much more favorable at the time to Octavian for a number of reasons I want to get into that um, uh, over Mark Anthony. There's some negative consequences when Mark Anthony wins. Mark Anthony joins up in the Middle East with a good-looking lady from Egypt by the name of Cleopatra. You can watch this in a 1961 version of Cleopatra, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. You can watch it, okay. <laughs> They join factions. However, Octavian wins. Everyone's very fearful in Rome. Their, their hero wins, defeats the navy of Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra commit suicide, and Octavian becomes the king. Now, there was a con there's a conflict between light and darkness. That conflict was decided at the cross. Even though we don't see all the ramifications of the cross completely fulfilled, it was decided at the cross. A battle was won. Our king defeated another king. There was a victory that was won. Octavian, though, didn't return to Rome for two years. But he was crowned the king then, but for two years, two years he wasn't, but there was still that sense, everything's going to be different now. Mark Anthony's not going to attack us. The Egyptians are not going to come upon us. It's a new day. Our king won. The Roman, the true Roman won. And life is going to be different now. And eventually Octavian comes into his city to be received, just like Jesus will come again for his church. The people in the city were looking forward to his coming. Anticipation, life was different. Even though another event was going to come, it was going to be a great event, and life was different because of these two events, his victory and his coming to the city. And life is different for us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and the reality and the truth that he's coming again. I'm no longer the same because of those two truths. You're no longer the same because of those two truths. Now, if he's coming and I've been loyal to him, like loyal to a king, then I should be looking with great anticipation for that coming. If I'm disloyal and I opposed him, that wouldn't be good news. I got good news for us. It's not real good news. It's bad news. That's what happened to Herod, King Herod the Great. He was actually on Mark Anthony's side. What did he do? Well, he... He went to Rome and made peace real fast. Well, Octavian gave him mercy, established him as the governor over Judea. And that's where Jesus and John the Baptist and all those people come in. And so as everybody lives on the face of the earth, they have a choice to be loyal to the king that's coming or they, to oppose the king that's coming. And there we have in history an illustration of the gospel. My point is this, there was a battle and an event, and there's another event coming, and we're sandwiched in between these two events, and that should radically change our lives, radically change it. Now, let's talk a little bit about the slimmed down gospel. The slimmed down gospel, is that a new diet? No, it's basically what we've been presenting. It kind of goes like this. Jesus died in your place. True. Absolutely. And that's part of the gospel message. So that you can be forgiven by just believing. Absolutely true. Those two things are true. And one day, when you die, you'll go to a place called heaven. 
true, but we've made it very spacey, very spooky, and I think we've given a very, very incomplete presentation of what the Bible, how the Bible describes eternity and heaven. We've actually leaned a little bit towards a Greek version of this thing. The Greeks who felt the ultimate destination was to be, be completely emancipated from your body and do away with all matter. Where the Bible says, we're going to get a new body. And all those over 50 said, it's exciting. Come on, so good. You'll get there, the rest of you. It's fun. It's fun. It's, that's a fun thing, you know. We get a new heavens and we get a new earth. And of course, I, I always get, and people have their, their concepts of heaven. I have to do a lot of funerals, so I get to hear all these funny statements, you know. You know, George is playing golf right now. I know he's on that fifth hole. And so there's golf in heaven. What verse did you get that, you know? I'm sure he's playing football right now. He's just laughing at us right now. Well, I hope, I hope. I get all these statements at funerals. I'm getting, you know, he's drinking to us right now. <laughs> right, right. Or we got these foggy, weird concepts of heaven, like we're all on clouds with harps. We're wearing togas with olive reefs on our heads and saying spacey things to each other. No, life goes on. This is what God intended, take out the, the curse and the sin and the hostility and the sickness and disease, take that all out and just put us there. That's what was intended to be forever. And we get to have a forever in a tangible state. This is why Paul's preaching on Mars Hill offended them so bad when he says he's appointed one man to judge you and he, should, he proved that he did by raising him from the dead. When he said raising him from the dead, they got upset. Not because the concept of resurrection is foolish to them, but the concept of an eternal physical life was. We get to have heaven on earth. We get to live forever. So what happens when we just kind of died in your place and what happens when, you know, you're going to go to heaven, everything's about, I go to heaven one day, and I, I'm forgiven. Because we just kind of go on living our Christianity as if Christianity is about us. About our forgiveness, and our healing, and our eternal security, and our welfare. When it's really about him and his glory. Those three verses I read to you at the beginning... Nothing was about you. It was all about a living God and his son. All we're doing is waiting for his son to return. It's about God making promises to David. It's about God who raised his son from the dead, demonstrating that he is God. It was all about God and not about us. So let me give you four elements of the simple but not so simple gospel. Well, is the gospel simple? It's simple, but it's not so simple. That's why slimming it down to just little things like ask Jesus in your heart, he died in your place is true, but it's incomplete. Be like I've never heard about football before, and and Aaron says, Bob, I'm going to teach you about football. Okay, good. Here's some shoulder pads. Okay, put, put them on, you prop it on like, like this, okay, strap it tight, good. Now what do you do? Just go out in the field out there. 
And all of a sudden, these guys are running at me, knocking me over, stomping on me. What's going on here? I, I got something that was true, but not complete. There's four elements to the simple but not so simple gospel. The first, it's about a defaced creation. Now, in Romans 1, you see Paul talking about this human race that went into decay and went into a degenerative state and did all these rebellious things. And, and it talks about the wrath of God. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Chapter 5 talks about how much God loves us, how we have peace with God, how God by the Holy Spirit is pouring his love into our heart and that we could come to him to get strength for anything that we might need. In Romans 8, it talks about creation. Actually, it talks about creation. How many times have you heard the gospel being presented, they talked about planet Earth. It talks about creation, that creation is actually groaning because it's been, it's been submitted to some bad stuff because of our sin, and it's waiting for us to be completely redeemed or completely transformed at the coming of Jesus because something's gonna happen to creation. Now let's talk about this thing about the wrath of God. A lot of people have a, a hard time with that concept where how could God be love but God come with wrath? Wrath is a very strong word. It's very strong anger. How, how, how do you explain that? How do we explain the love of God with the wrath of God? Well, I want you to look at wrath as actually an outworking of love. And we're talking about a God who doesn't enjoy nuking people or bringing judgment to people. In fact, the Bible says he takes no pleasure in judgment. But we're talking about a God whose creation or whose painting has been completely defaced. It'd be like us bringing in from Italy, you know, some painting by Michelangelo or some famous Renaissance author that's worth millions of dollars. And some kid comes in here with this tagging can sprays and does a, he does a neighborhood tag all over it. He just defaced the very beauty of that creation. That's what we've done. We've taken our can sprays and our tagging and our sinful ways, and we've just defaced absolutely everything he created. And so God, God's grief, in order to be able to rescue us, in order to be able to renew us, he has to uphold his integrity, and he has to uphold his law. There's no renewal, there's no restoration around the law. As Christians, we're saying we're saved, not saved by law, we're saved by believing it's true. But it's not that we get off the hook. It's not that we don't do law as Christians. It's how the law gets fulfilled in us that takes place. It's different than the Old Testament. But if God's gonna renew us, he has to uphold his law. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. And then through that, he fulfills it in our hearts because he paid the penalty for our shortcomingness, our sin. And so God, to rescue us, had to judge because what was happening it was contrary to love. God is love, but wrath is an outworking. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in iniquity. I saw some pictures of some of the children that were killed in that chemical you know, warfare that was taking place in Syria. Nothing will provoke your anger than that picture. That was pure evil. 
Pure evil, if you're a loving person, will provoke something in you to stop that. In the name of justice. So God must uphold his integrity. That doesn't take away his love. It actually is a manifestation of his love because those things that he forbids are those things that destroy us. It's his love in action. You also see that the gospel is a fulfillment of covenant. We read about it already in, in, in Romans 1, about his son. I mean, he descended from the house of David. His commitment, his covenant he made with David. In Romans 4, he talks about Abraham and David, the father of the Jewish faith, and David, the greatest king in the, in the Jewish faith, that he made covenants with both of them. He's a covenant-keeping God. 1 Corinthians 15, he, 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 he talks about <clears throat> fulfilling these plans that he has the fulfillment of covenant, the covenants that he made, which is also the third thing. It's about a new creation. You know, creation groans. Creation groans to be renewed. So the Bible talks about in the gospel, and let's rethink heaven here for a second. You look at Revelation 21, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. Now let's just let, let me read Revelation 21, the first four or five verses here. And you tell me where we're going to spend eternity. <clears throat> I'm going to read out of the ESV version here. Try to put a little drama into this. When I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's heaven coming to a new earth, and in this new earth we dwell forever with resurrected bodies. There's a new creation. We live between two events, the first coming of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, and the second coming of Jesus. We live between these two truthful events, and that makes all the difference. The gospel involves a new creation. The gospel also involves a coronation of a sacrificial king. It's about a king and his kingdom. In Philippians, Paul says this. He says he's been given a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall what? And every tongue shall what? I'm sure when Octavian came into Rome... They're receiving their new king after two years of winning this war. That there was a tremendous reception of a coordination of a king. It's about a king. Now I say all this to say this: that the gospel, the gospel's not about me. The gospel is about Jesus. I get to receive his mercy his grace, his work, but it's about him. Sometimes we get the focus all about us. It's about his glory. Now here's the problem with the angry God gospel. It represents paganism. It goes something like this. We get God really angry, and to calm him down, to accept us, he basically beat his son to death. Now, there's truth in that statement that God is angry against sin. 
And there's truth that his wrath is appeased. And it's true that he accepts me on the basis of what Jesus did. I'm not trying to underplay that. I'm talking about the way we present it, like we're trying to satisfy some angry God, like in some aboriginal form of idolatry, like the, 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 the sun god or the god of thunder or something, that we're trying to calm it down so we don't get the volcano blowing us off the island. That's not a real nice picture of a relationship warm with God. There's some truths in, in that. We're taking the good news out of the news. And it can make some real bad news in sharing the gospel that way. And what happens is culture gets repulsed by it. It's not effective. You know, I have a real problem when some people say stuff like, God is in a good mood today. You ever heard that statement? You know, having a great service. God is in a good mood today. I, I really wrestle with that. First, I wrestle with it because... Um, God is not moody. God doesn't show up in a bad mood. God doesn't show up in a good mood. God doesn't act according to his emotions. God acts according to his nature. God is love. God is truth. God is justice. God is kind. God is righteous. God is holy. And so God acts according to his nature he doesn't act because this particular day he just feels really good. God doesn't wake up with a migraine. He's always consistent. He acts according to his nature, his integrity, and his love to restore things. A grieved God must judge, but a grieved God, a grieved God judges so that love can prevail. We need to present the love of God to people. Yes, the justice and that Jesus dies in their place because there is holiness, but not because we're trying to appease some God that's just really ticked off. What happens when I really grab a hold of what the gospel is? Where two radical events took place, and I'm sandwiched in between these two events. Well, it does this. It triggers a, means a genuine gospel-triggered heart change takes place. Let's just think about it. When I see the gospel, that he loves me so much that he takes my punishment upon himself, rises from the dead, and he's coming again, and I embrace it, I'm changed. I, I don't see God the same anymore. I don't see life the same anymore. I don't see myself the same anymore. I don't see people the same anymore. I serve people because Jesus served me. I give my life to my, my wife, my children, my family, my friends, because Jesus gave his life for me. I give sacrificially because he gave everything. I seek to know him because who else is there? I open my heart to his Holy Spirit to change me because I want to please him. Everything in this life between these two events is fading because he is coming. I don't cling to things. I don't compete for things. And I don't even contend for things just so that I could be pleased and blessed. I contend for things that would please him. Because the gospel's not about me. The gospel is about him. 
back, I don't know when it was, 2002, 2003, somewhere in there, on a Friday night, my neighbor was out walking, and I was out in the front yard with my kids playing, and he's, he looked kind of depressed. His name was Jeff. I said, Jeff, how are you? I'm not doing too good. I'd like to talk to you. And I said, well, we're heading off to a movie. I remember the very night we are going to go see Spider-Man. I mean, it was a real big thing to give up on a divine appointment for to go see Spider-Man movie, but next day I got there and I said, uh, I said, uh, what's happening, Jeff? He says, well, I have liver cancer. They're not giving me long to live. I said, well, how can I help you? And he says, I, I want to make sure that I'm right with God. And so I was able to lead him to Jesus and, you know, we did Bible studies and he, he learned the gospel and all that that was meant. And for the next two, two and a half years, I watched this man be radically, radically changed by the gospel. He became probably the most prolific giver in this church. He blessed everybody. We had an outreach like the eggs. All right at all. I mean, he just, he was like Ebenezer Scrooge. He started giving everything he had to the purpose of God. He loved people. He served. He wept in worship. The event that Jesus died for him and the fact that he knew he was going to meet Jesus changed everything. Everything was different now. I remember watching someone die of cancer is, is not a fun. Some of you have had to do that, and I've had to do that. It's not a fun thing to observe. But I'm at his house. He's probably three days from dying. He's got tubes all in him. Here he is in pain. He gets out, halfway out of his gurney in his living room. And this man is in the darkest hour of his night, said these words, where's my wife? Where's my beautiful, beautiful wife that I love? Two events changed everything for Jeff. And life was no longer about himself. It was about the God he was going to meet, the God he wanted to imitate, and the people he loved. The gospel changes everything.